Buying a property involves many legal processes. And if you have to hire a lawyer, it would be helpful to understand what a lawyer has to do for you. What's the difference in legal process between buying a HDB and a private property? What do you look out for when you're buying resale? And how do you protect yourself as a buyer? We go through the process, the timeline, how much legal fees is involved, and how does a lawyer help you to get your financing in order? We also talk about buyer stamp duty, additional buyer stamp duty, ABSD, and ownership options, which is how the property is split among co-owners, as this could have potential ramifications down the road. All of these are important to know, but sometimes all these legal stuff goes over my head, right? So I'm speaking to a lawyer today to make sure we understand it well. If you feel confused about the legal process of buying a property in Singapore, this episode will help you understand it better. For reference, this episode is recorded in early October 2021. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chew with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finances well. Today, we're going to find out what does a property lawyer do when you are buying a house in Singapore. Conveyancing is a legal step that every property owner needs to know. My guest is a legal associate at Apex Law. She advises clients on conveyancing matters and helps them to understand the whole process of their property transactions. In our conversation, she shares her legal knowledge using examples and layman terms. Let's welcome Hui Yu. So in property buying or selling, we keep hearing this term called conveyancing. Correct. Can you explain mm. to us what does it mean? Okay, so conveyancing is actually the umbrella term in law. Conveyancing law is for us to handle all property transactions. So the conveyance of land, that's where it starts from. Lah. So when you transfer land or any property over to someone else, that's the meaning of conveyance. Okay, so the mm. transfer of a property in this Correct. case, uh, me mm. transferring to you. Mm. Okay, so today we're going to talk about buying property specifically. Mm. So what does a lawyer do in the whole process of buying a property? How does a lawyer okay. help me? Okay, so I understand like um, many of you when you want to buy a property, you are fixed on, okay, I want this property. You head down, maybe you have an agent, maybe you don't. You head down, view the property and then you sign your option to purchase. And then that's when things get interesting because you now you need a legal service to come in and assist you to complete this transaction. So for our firm, we do help our clients to simplify the process so that their only worry is to pay the balance purchase price. So that will be at the end. When they walk in, they can just have the keys and then they head to their new home. Mm. But behind the scenes, actually, the lawyers are doing a lot of work. <laughs> so these are the parts where it's not seen by the common layman. So what we actually do is say, for example, drafting of all the legal documents, even for HDB properties, there are a lot of legal documents involved. When you take a loan, we also add for your bank. We also help the bank to disperse the monies. So whatever money that you are taking from the bank, actually have to go through some checks first on the property, then the bank will decide they can lend you the money. 
Mm. Is it quite a standard process though? Whether it's a mm. new launch or it's a resale. I mean, maybe for a resale, mm. the terms, you have to look at it carefully. Yes. But for a new launch, it shouldn't be, be quite standard from my okay. understanding. So yes, the sale and purchase agreement for new launches are actually uh, governed by the rules. So they don't vary much. But what you will see is that there's a lot of special and natures uh, actually added on to each sale. So even though if you see the transaction is almost about the same, there's always these few clauses that come across. There's always special conditions that are tied to each specific transaction. So even for each client who come in, we do have to have a one-on-one meeting, sit down with them, go through with them all their documents and advise them on all the special conditions that come in. Mm. Mm. So even if you are buying a HDB, there are also special circumstances that are tied to each purchase. Even say, for example, maybe their seller have requested for an extension of stay. Maybe the buyer have uh, applied for a grant. We will advise our clients accordingly. Right. So tell us the difference between you know being a buyer for HDB, new launch, mm-hmm. BTO, uh, or private property and condo mm-hmm. or resale. Like let's just slowly segment them and tell <laughs> okay, me what's the difference sure. between all of them. Yeah. Okay. So the very first big difference is what property are buying. Obviously. Mm. Mm, so for HDB and private properties, the main difference is that HDB comes into play. For HDB properties, there are public housing, they are subsidized. So there is quite a few rules and regulations that you have to abide to. One of the most common one that everyone has to abide to is the eligibility to purchase a HDB. So you do have to take note of the uh, schemes that HDB have before you purchase a BTO or a resale flat. So for BTO, yes, it's quite standard because the application's are all handled by HDB itself. People will come in, apply for BTO. Well, if lucky, then they get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then towards the end, towards the key collection part, that's when the lawyers come in. And why the lawyers are required is usually because you are taking a bank loan. So for bank loans, we do have to come in and then help you to disperse the monies, help you to arrange for how much you are using from your CPF as well. Mm, then we'll advise you on what's the balance you are still paying from your own cash, from your own pocket lah. Okay, mm. so what a lawyer does in this case, okay, we're talking about a new launch HDB BTO, right? Correct. So yeah, helping us in the relationship between uh, me, let's say me, I'm the mm. buyer, and then there's the, the bank, Correct. and then there's HDB itself, because I'm mm. buying for HDB. Yes. Earlier on, you mentioned there are some annexes which are different. So uh, That one is more for private property. That one is more for private. Correct. Okay. For HDB, they do have it standard. You know, your HDB all built is around the same. Mm. <laughs> Each HDB, maybe the facilities a bit different, but... Still, roughly, HDB rules are all the same. Mm. Mm. For private condominiums, however, that's where the difference comes in. So, for private condominiums, when it's built by private developers, they may have many different rules and regulations on how they want their whole condominium to look. So, the MCST, which will be formed later, will actually have a say, a say in how these rules and regulations will be. Mm. How many define MCST first? Ah, MCST is actually the Managing Community Strata Title. Mm. So this is a community that will be formed with the registered proprietors of this condominium. So when you stay in a condominium, there is the MCST who will take care of the common facilities mm. owned by all the property owners the of this pool, condo. The gym. Yes, the pool, the gym, and so on and so forth. Mm. So before this MCST is formed, the developers will actually have their annexures attached to their sale and purchase agreement. They will check in with you on um, some of the common things that are more practical on the ground is that whether what kind of balcony screen you can put 
in if you can install any additional awnings outside of your house what are the window facades that you can install as well oh, so, so these, these are some these are really important then because I cannot anyhow change uh, how mm. the condo looks on the outside yes, right and correct. you know if I want to resell it then mm. you if I affect the whole look of the condo then the yes. property developer will not want that to happen correct okay. Mm. okay so those are the rules and regulations for private condominiums so that's a bit different so right. HDB very standard is uh, they have their rules windows all the same <laughs> yeah you can't change it's it it's true like. that HDBs all look the same nowadays <laughs> when I go I mean, to a friend's yeah. new place like, eh? <laughs> yeah the okay. video all look the same <laughs> <laughs> you can say that because you're a lawyer. <laughs> if I'm talking to an agent now, okay, maybe different story. <laughs> of course, your own renovations, that's how you personalize it. Yeah. That's your internal. Mm, so you right. can personalize it mm-hmm. afterwards. Understand, mm, understand. <laughs> okay, so we've spoken about private property and mm. then uh, about a new launch BTO. Mm. How about a resale then? Okay, so resale, right, mm. usually there's a contract. So for HDB resale, your option to purchase is also standardized. You do have to go to HDB website and then download the exact HDB option to purchase. Mm. They'll give you a serial number that's tied to you. And you have to get this approved by HDB. So that's how it's actually different from private. So from private condominiums, right, uh, you do need the lawyer involved because each option to purchase, although nowadays there's standard templates, but the agreement between buyer and seller is more you can agree on different items, different terms. So for example, extension of stay, HDB only allows for three months. You have to agree and then apply for it and apply for HDB's approval. Mm, extension of stay referring mm. to... Ah, okay, sorry. So mm. extension of stay comes in when your legal completion is on a certain date. For example, tomorrow, you are completing the sale of purchase of your property. However, the sellers have yet to find a place to move to. So the sellers say, uh, okay, can you please give me maybe another three more months to okay. stay in before I can move to my new place. Mm. So even though you have paid the monies over, you are the legal owner, your sellers who are supposed to move out will stay on for another three months. Mm. Mm. So for HDB, it's standardized. Uh, only three months. They can't go longer than three months. Whereas for private property, you can do as and when you wish. Oh, okay. So you can just agree accordingly. You can even charge a rental amount. Oh, it can be stated mm. in the contract. Yes, so this can be stated in the contract. You can negotiate with the seller and then you can get the lawyer to come in and then draft the letters to actually confirm it in writing. Mm, so mm. there's more freedom in negotiating for private properties lah, in this sense. Okay, so for extension of stay, if it's mm. for HDB resale, maximum three months. Correct. It'll be stated in the contract. Mm. For resale in a private property mm. setting, that will be well, negotiated between you and the seller. Yes, okay. Yes. Okay. If I'm, I'm nice enough, I mean, I can work out something like even charge him a rent, charge him mm, or her a correct, rent for correct. it. Okay. Okay. That's where the lawyer help me craft all the terms, right? Yes. We'll look at it and we'll let you know, okay, so you have agreed. So this is what you should be doing. Mm, 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 then we'll advise accordingly. What other differences are there for a resale? It seems like there's a lot ah, more okay. things to look out for. Yes, so for private property, because it's not built by HDB contractors, so private properties, we do have to do our searches more thoroughly. There are what we call legal requisitions. So oh, this requisitions. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. Is it R E Q U I S I T I O N? And what does that mean? It's search for information. So these are a set of questions that we will send in to government authorities. So when developers build the property, they do have to get approval from government authorities like Building and Construction Authority. So these are the searches that the buyers don't see, but it's what the lawyers are doing behind the scenes. So for condominium 
Minions will ensure that the whole property is in order. Uh, any additions or any alterations to the condos are also in order. There is approval given. So we'll make sure all these checks are there. Okay. So just to, to make sure I, I get it right. So we talk about the differences between, let's say, the first example was BTO. So mm. it's, it's more in a way more straightforward because it's with HDB and you're managing right. the relationship with HDB. And then of course, there's the bank loan part. Mm. You manage the relationship with the bank for the client. Mm. And then there's the private property. Yes. And then, uh, so for private property, you really have to look at the inextures. That's what you mm. call it. And because every property developers might have certain things that they want to put into the contract. So mm. that's where the lawyer can help you sort out the information that's in the inextures. Correct. Okay. Mm. And then after that, you move into resale. And of course, resale itself, there's also a HDB and private yes. property. But generally, the idea is that uh, for a resale of a private property, mm-hmm. uh, there are certain terms that you can negotiate further. For example, the extension of stay. Mm, and yes. then, but for a resale in HDB, it's maximum three months. Correct. Okay, any other mm. differences that we should know about between these three categories? Mm, okay. So the main few are between the HDB and the private. Mm. So for private, when they are managed by MCST as well, uh, when it's a resale, lah, we will also get a certificate from them to say that this property is in order. So the next difference, I guess, is when you speak about, because nowadays it's condominiums, but there are some who are buying landed properties. So landed properties will oh, be the yeah. next set that okay. will be slightly different. Mm. And of course, because the value of landed properties is much higher, you take on more risk when you're buying a landed property. Uh, the rules governing landed properties are also slightly different. The approvals they are getting have to be checked more thoroughly as well. Okay, mm, so that would be the next set after condominium, uh, condominium I suppose. Right. Mm. Is, so for uh, landed property, is it open to a lot more f- uh, flexibility? Uh, that will be the same for private condominiums because they are still uh, contracts. Mm. So in a sense, although this is for conveyancing, it's still tied to a contract between the buyer and the seller. Okay, okay. Mm. So uh, could you give an example of how, how different it might be for a landed property in this case? Uh, for one is that landed properties, you are not able to buy it if you are a foreigner. Mm. You do have to receive special approval from the LDAU. So there's special approval from government because they don't allow foreigners to so buy it. So there's a government body that you have Correct. to get approval from. So this is a Singapore mm. law, essentially. Yes, it's a Singapore okay. law. Mm. Yeah. Then for landed property, usually because the price is higher, mm. we will want to make sure your rights are protected. One instance in which maybe one of the questions for a common maybe dispute, lah, for example, was a client came in and then she told me that there's a huge tree in the backyard which she wants it removed. Okay. Because, you know, when it comes to landed property, you have gardens mm. and then the gardening cost is actually quite high. So there was a tree in the backyard and she wanted it removed. And so she asked me, uh, the seller said they will remove it. Right. But legally, what are my rights to this tree? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that's why we Who owns the tree? <laughs> uh, it, it's owned by the owner. Okay, so it's okay. in the land. Uh, it is fixed it, to the floor. So actually, in property transactions, there's this uh, meaning that you buy the property with vacant possession. So when you buy the property with vacant possession, it means you, as it comes, mm. uh, you have all the fixtures in the property. Mm. Any furniture in the property should usually be removed. Okay, so uh, vacant, yes. um, the definition is like it's, it's all empty, it's right? Empty. But in so, this case, it means mm. the fixtures are, are have to be there, of course. Mm, but correct. the seller could remove all the, the furniture. Correct. Okay. Mm, yes. So, uh, so this is also subject to agreement. I mean, the starting point, there's always a starting legal point, mm. but it's always, say, subject to your agreement. So for this tree, actually legally, it should be recognized as a fixture. 
because it's grown into your ground. So that's a fixture. It's not oh. something that's easily removable. Okay. But after that, she clarified and said, no, no, it's not in the ground. It's in the pot. Ah, so that's when it's a very okay, minute okay. difference but it's a difference so okay. if it's in a pot then yes the seller have the obligation to remove it from the property oh this client could become uh. a lawyer <laughs> she got potential <laughs> like she, yeah. she's trying to understand the definitions and, yes, and therefore like, mm, trying to protect her rights as well mm, making sure that she, she gets what she wants mm. at the end of the transaction yes okay so our job as lawyers is to make sure when at the end of the transaction, you are getting what you want. But in the meantime, because we are always standing by the line of the law, you are underground. So how we advise you is, okay, so underground, you see this, you see the tree there. This is your legal rights to it. This is what you can do, what you can tell the seller to do as well. Okay, okay. Mm. That's more of an interesting story. Do you have horror stories <laughs> that you have horror to resolve stories. for your clients? Ah, like, okay. Really difficult cases. So disputes between clients. Mm, mm, mm. Like, mm, usually this comes in also same concept here is usually for clients, what they see is when they go into the house, they see something that's comes as an unpleasant shock to them. So one case that happened was that uh, when the client went in, they actually saw that the countertop was removed. So that's a fixture, right? Yes. Countertop so fixture. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the definition is, uh, the difference is very minute, mm. but it is there. So any countertops, any uh, kitchen cabinet, for example, those are considered fixtures. Whereas if it's a table, a standalone table, your, for example, your dining table that's not built in, there's a furniture. Lah. So that one, if the seller removes it, then it's fine. But in this case, it was a countertop. <laughs> yeah, so... Buyer went in and got a shock. <laughs> right, so your, your client, the buyer in this case, yes. uh, the buyer needs to fight for his, the rights right, yes. right, to get back the, the countertop. To get back okay, the countertop. Okay, okay. Yes, correct. So because when they sold the property, it actually comes with this countertop. Did they like the countertop so much that they removed it and moved it to a new house? Like, why would you remove the countertop? Uh, that I can't say because we did not communicate <laughs> okay, with the seller. Okay, I can't understand. tell you why the countertop was removed. Yeah, it must have been a really nice countertop. Yes. I mean, nowadays <laughs> when you look at yeah, when you look at this kind of fish is actually expensive. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. Yeah. Right, mm. so that's a, well, I'm assuming that's a private property, right? Yes, it's a private property. I see, mm. I see. So you have to resolve it for your client. Correct. Did the buyer get back the countertop at the end? Ah, okay. Just curious. So for the disputes cases, because for our conveyancing process is uh, up to the legal completion. So when there's a dispute, right, you do have to uh, engage the lawyers to again help you in the dispute to get back the countertop. Mm, legal mm. completion in this case, what, it, mm. what does it mean? Okay, legal completion means we get the title deeds to you. You are legally recognized as the owner. Mm. And also you have the keys and access to the property. Okay, so mm. it is only at that point in time the buyer found that the countertop is missing. Correct. So if I found mm. that the countertop was missing before this legal mm. completion, then I could... Um, what do you call it? Yes. Raise uh, okay. a dispute. So when we raise the dispute, uh, in that case, we still help our client to write into the seller. Mm. Because, you know, we want to wrap up nicely. But, you know, with litigation and disputes, there are always additional costs. So we did help the buyer to write in to the seller's law firm and say that, you know, this is missing. Okay. And yes, okay. and afterwards, I think they actually went on to privately settle the matter. Uh, mm. But because in this case, I as the buyer, I found out only after the legal completion, I have to mm. like, kind of like raise it as a new case again yes, to get correct. it resolved and in, in this case it was mm. resolved privately eventually mm. okay so should there be like a, a checklist of things to hand over for a resale 
Ah, okay. So this is uh, something the buyers can consider. So uh, when you first go and view the property, uh, the option to purchase sometimes will say that there's an inventory list. Mm. So you can consider having this inventory list being annexed to the option to purchase so that this will help you in the future when there's any disputes. Lah. Mm. Mm. Uh, we also have this inventory list for new launches. Uh, new launches usually comes with the sale and purchase agreement. Mm. Uh, inventory list, sometimes, yes, new launches may come with, uh, say, washing machine or, say, uh, micro, uh, not microwave, mostly oven. Lah. Mm. Yeah, maybe a built-in oven. Yeah, so all these specifications will actually be in the sale and purchase agreement. They will actually even specify the type of flooring that will be provided, the type of finishing that will be provided. All this is in your sale and purchase agreement. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what I understand so far is that there's a lot of work that, that lawyers mm. do behind the scene, um, but we, we don't really get to see them. Mm. Is it true that a lot of first-time home buyers, especially, right, they mm. just leave it to the lawyers because this, all this legal <laughs> stuff is too complicated for me? Yes, okay. Yeah, for us, we also still try to simplify the process as much as possible because, you know, we want our clients to experience a process that's fast-free. For them, it's very straightforward. We try to avoid all these disputes. So on our end, we check in. But when there are disputes, we do raise it up to the clients because they do have to be informed. So as far as possible, we balance it. Lah. Mm. Even though sometimes our clients come in, okay, uh, I just want to pay and get my key. Mm, then mm. we'll, okay, but we have to settle you down. We have to explain to you. Okay. And in layman terms, let you know what you are going through in this process. Mm. So it's mm. part of a lawyer's duty to sit down with the client and explain the, the mm. all the terms within the contract, right? Correct. And I have to like mm. sit down with you and, and listen to, to the whole conversation to, mm. so that I know what's going on. Yes, so at least the buyer is informed of all these risks and say what is going to go, what is going to happen during these few months. So we inform our buyers of this, we give them advice. and But on the buyer's end, is we try to simplify it so they don't have to do anything, lah, okay. basically. Okay. Mm. How much is legal fees? Could you give a range? Uh, okay, so uh, legal fees will depend on uh, whether it's a HDB or whether it's a private property. So because as explained just now, the legal process is quite different. We do have more extensive searches for le- private properties. So it will actually range in at 2000 onwards lah. Mm. Usually, that is the case okay. around there. Okay. Because there's quite a few disbursements that we have to come up with. So, actually, our legal fees, even though we do at 2000 from that 2000 there's payments being made to IRAS. That's for stamp duties for uh, mortgage. So, one thing funny is that um, a lot of clients don't know about this. But when you take up a loan, when you take a mortgage, even mm. if it's for HDB loan, you're actually paying $500 to IRAS for stamp fees. Mm, so that's stamp mm. fees, $500. Yes. But it's not paid to the law firm. You're just uh, okay. getting the money to, to for the yes. stamp fees, right? Okay. Yes, so we help our clients to process all this as well. So that's also one important part of the lawyer's job is to ensure that you pay the correct stamp duties. 
Okay. So it ranges from 2000 onwards depending on how mm. complicated the whole process is. Yes. Okay. You mentioned buyer stamp duty. So tell mm. us about it. Okay. So buyer stamp duty is a fee that every buyer have to pay when they are purchasing a property regardless of whether it's HDB or it's private. So the range for private residential and HDB residential property only. Notice the focus on residential. Lah. Mm. So actually, this amount is only for residential properties, not for commercial or industrial properties. So for residential properties, for the first 180000 of your purchase is at 1%. Next 180,000 is at 2%, and then the third 180 is at 3%. Mm. Then from there on, it's at 4% onwards. So if you go online, you can actually Google buyer stamp duty. IRAS and they have a calculator for you. You can enter your details and the property price and then they'll be able to tell you the buyer stamp duty. Mm, but in addition to this buyer stamp duty, there's a second part which is additional buyer stamp there duty. There we go. Yes. <laughs> That's how it's so, called additional. Correct. Okay, okay. So the rates just now were the normal ones. So everyone buying regardless of your uh, citizenship for even Singapore citizens, you have to pay the normal buyer stamp duty. For additional buyer stamp duty is usually for Singapore permanent residents and also for foreigners and for Singapore citizens who are buying their second property. So for example, you already have your first HDB and you're thinking about buying your second condo as an investment plan. Maybe you want to rent out a second property, but you want to continue staying in your HDB. In this case, when you come to us to purchase a second property, we will advise you accordingly for Singapore citizens purchasing their second property, there's an additional buyer stamp duty of 12% of the purchase price, market value. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this one we will let them know uh, during our meeting how much actually they are supposed to pay lah. Okay, mm. so it's also part of the, the lawyer's duty to let the, the buyer know about the additional mm. buyer stamp duty. Correct. And mm. to make sure that, of course, we can afford it mm. right, and not yes. be shocked. Mm, okay, so it yeah. seems like at every at different stages, there'll be mm. something to pay. For example, stamp duties, correct. there'll be the initial deposit and then the, the monthly, the mortgage loan, of course. Mm. So, and then you mentioned disbursements just now. Ah, so, could okay. you talk a bit about that and what's the whole okay. process and how is the lawyer still involved in this process? Mm. So, for disbursements, let's start off from that. When mm. I mentioned disbursements, right... It simply means the giving out of money. Okay, so, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, I can, I can uh, see my money going out to pay for the property. Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> money going out of disbursement. <laughs> yes, okay, okay. So, uh, at the start of the stage, so um, this may be the other part that's different for HDB and for condominiums. So, for private properties, that like maybe we start with that. Uh, when you first get your option, you pay a first one percent deposit. When the option is being exercised, you need to pay a four percent deposit. Mm. Mm. Then thereafter, uh, you have to pay your buyer stamp duty within mm. 14 days when you exercise the option. Then you have a completion date, which is usually fixed for 8 to 12 weeks after the exercise of option. The completion date is when you pay your balance amount that is still due after you have used up your bank loan and your CPF amount. So for example, you buy a property at $1 million, you first pay 10000 at the okay. start when okay. you first feel, okay, I want to buy the property. Right, right. Uh, then the seller say, okay, so in exchange, you need to give me 10000 first, then I'll give you this option. Then you can come back and decide later if you want to continue. Okay. Okay. Then once you continue, you pay a 40000 Uh, This process, we actually assist our clients to help them to pay over the 4% deposit to the seller's law firm. 
So ten thousand is to to get the OTP, mm. and forty thousand is to exercise the OTP. Yes, one percent right? and then four mm. percent. Correct. That. Okay. That's the usual rates, lah. Mm. Uh, because it's a private contract. Oh, using they one can... million as the as the mm, yes, amount. Okay. As the amount. Got it. So just as an example. Yeah, easier to work with numbers. Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes there may be different um, varying amount. Also, they may say, oh. I need a two percent first, then you can pay me three percent later. Oh, okay. It mm, need but not be that's 1%. common. Yes, that's that's common. Oh, okay. Mm, okay. So the one and four is the most common one that most sellers use. But if the buyer and seller agree otherwise, so this is where the freedom to negotiate comes in. Okay. So if they agree otherwise, they can write down in writing say how much they want to pay upfront. I can change the four percent too to exercise yep. the OTP. Sure. Okay, but usually it, it cannot differ too widely, right? It, Usually, the buyer won't want to pay too much, much upfront right? as well. Unnecessarily. Yeah. Yes, correct. Okay, okay. So, that's the standard procedure. Lah. Okay, so mm. the seller could possibly ask for 2% for the mm. initial. And then 3% later. Ah, okay. Mm. Okay, so that still makes it 5%. Still makes it 5 lah. Okay, so this mm. part is still negotiable. Mm. Well, and you mentioned you have 14 days to exercise the OTP. Well, previously, I've been reading articles where it used mm-hmm. to be 14 days, but there are cases whereby uh, the buyers can extend it and it's been clamped down. Could you tell me ah, a bit okay. more about that? The clamp down is for new launches. Mm. So for new launches, right, um, previously what new launches were doing is they issue an OTP. The OTP will expire within three weeks. And then when it expires, the uh, developer will just say that, you know, we are giving you another chance. We are extending this option to you. So another refresh of another three weeks, Okay. Uh, for example. A new three weeks, mm, for example. Yes. Okay. So now the government has stepped in. So this is where government regulations may come into play. Even though it's a private contract between developer and buyer, mm. the government regulations have come in to say that, no, this uh, option reissuing is not allowed. Okay, so this is mm. OTP reissue. Yes, correct. Right? So mm. I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, mm. on the ground, uh, let's say I'm the buyer and I need mm. cash flow. Mm. So maybe, you know, I, I couldn't pay it within the three weeks and mm. therefore, and therefore a lot of people, <laughs> some people are doing it and therefore yes. I do it as well. But this mm. kind of uh, inflates the situation because like mm. people are maybe buying it, buying more properties mm. and, and therefore the government has their own policies to yes. come into place to mm. make sure that this doesn't happen, right? And overinflate the property market too much. <laughs> yes, correct. Mm. So that's where the government authorities have stepped in. Mm. Uh, but that's for new launches. Right. So for okay. a purchase of a resale, uh, the expiry of the option has not been regulated yet. Oh, okay. mm, so if you are purchasing it from a seller in the market, in the open market, uh, your option expiry date I mean, common procedure is still three weeks or sometimes two weeks, but that is agreement between buyer and seller. So they can set in by a certain date, you need to exercise the option. Mm, could it mm. go more than three weeks? Yes. It's definitely. possible. Mm. So it's all an agreement between the, the Correct, there's an agreement. Buyer and the seller. government so far has only stepped in for new launches, new launches. with developers. Okay, got mm. it. So can you help me understand regarding ownership? Mm, Let's talk sure. about ownership. Well, there's ownership of the property and then there's ownership of the mortgage loan itself. Mm, tell, okay. tell me about it. Okay. So, um, in a sense, it's not an ownership of the mortgage loan, mm. but more when you apply for a bank loan, uh, say you are applying, most of the time you purchase this with your spouse. So, both you and your spouse are legal owners of the property. However, when it comes to the bank loan, when you went to the bank, you actually assessed, they will actually assess your income. You decide that only one party wants to be the borrower of the loan and the other party usually will stand as a surety. Oh, okay. Mm. So is it a definite case whereby only one party can, what do you call it? A borrower. Borrower, can be the borrower. Mm. You can't have two borrowers? You can have two borrowers as well. This is actually more tied into the 
buyer's own financial planning has to whether how their income is being structured, who do they want to stand in as the borrower. Understand, because mm. if I'm a single borrower, you're looking mm. only at my income and Correct. let's say my income is higher than my spouse, then I want to mm. get a higher loan. Mm. So you, I'll just be a single borrower. Mm. But if I have two borrowers, mm. that means uh, me and my spouse in this case, uh, well, the bank will look at both our incomes, right? Yes. And correct. therefore, let's say let's say the spouse is earning lower and, and mm-hmm. the bank will not lend out as much. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, they will look at the combined income combined if income. you have two borrowers. Ah, yes. okay, okay. Mm, but different banks have their own criteria. Mm. So that's why some people, when you go to a banker, they will actually assess it and then you can get your letter of offer in order. Okay, so there could be a case where there's one borrower and what is the role of the other party? The other person is just seen as a non-borrower. Mm. So even though he owns the property, he is not borrowing directly from the bank to make the purchase of this property. So he will still be tied into this loan lah, in a sense. But for him, his credit facilities is more freed up. Okay, mm. so the, the the other spouse in this case can mm. be free to borrow other things for car loan right. or whatever, mm. whatever you right. Okay, so there's the borrower and a, a non borrower. Mm. Okay, but well, um, uh, mm, toy, uh. <laughs> because you know, uh, well, both the spouse own the yes. property, right? But mm. what happens if something happens to them? They want to divorce, and ah, then the, okay. the the loan is what well, it belongs to the borrower, right? The bo- mm-hmm. borrower has the responsibility to repay the loans, right? Mm. The non-borrower in this case doesn't have the legal liability. Is that true? Uh, they will still have the liability mm. there because they are still the owner of the property. Okay. When the property is not being paid, meaning your monthly installments are not being paid on time, the bank will still foreclosure the property, meaning they will sell it mm. and then they will redeem back the loan, whatever, how much it is outstanding. Mm. So uh, in the case of a divorce, uh, what happens usually is that there's a transfer of this matrimonial home uh, there will be a court order that will have to go through. So for that, right, uh, what will happen is the couple, if they have already married and they bought this home in joint names, they will go to the divorce lawyers mm. to get their court orders in place. So depending on whether it's contested or non-contested, they will have a finalized agreement to say what happens to this property. So even if only one person is the sole borrower, uh, the property in the sense will still be dealt as a matrimonial home. Okay. Mm. Okay. I, I think my key takeaway for this part mm. of the conversation is that there's a difference between owning the property mm. and being the, the borrower mm, of the correct. mortgage loan mm. in, the, in this case. Mm. So the, the ownership structure for the property itself, it can mm. be between two names, the spouses, correct. but the, the borrower can be one person. So, so there's a difference between these two. We just yes. have to know that there's a difference between these mm. two. Well, other cases whereby, let, let me think, uh, another example other than spouse. Mm-hmm. Let's say uh, the child owns the property, but mm-hmm. the, the mortgage loan, the borrower is a family member. Is that possible? Ah, okay. But the family member might or might not live in the house. Okay, so that's actually yeah. uh, against MAS rules. Ah, okay. So if, okay, okay. Uh, say you are borrowing, uh, sorry, so say yes, purchasing this property in your child's name. Mm, mm, and yeah, because I'm a parent, parent, I love my child, I, I will support <laughs> him or her all the way, you know, yes. I will pay the mm. bank, you know, but he or mm. she can live alone there, you know. Mm. So in a sense, if you still want to borrow from the bank, right, the borrowing must still be done in the child's name. Okay. Uh, uh, on my own, a... I can give my child money. But, yes. <laughs> but, the, yes. but my child must be the person who is borrowing. borrowing okay. Bank, yes. okay, mm. okay. So in this scenario, sometimes if say the parents wants to buy a property for their child, so that will be slightly 
different. Uh, we do have some cases who parents come in, they want to buy the property for their child. Mm. Uh, how they, they will not be taking up a bank loan. So what they do is they actually pay for the property in full cash and there's a trust deed for their child. Okay, tell me mm. a bit more about that. So I, I have to pay in full? Is this, mm, it's a correct. choice or that, uh, that's yes, what usually happens? Okay. Uh, yes, it's a choice because if say you're a parent and you want to purchase the property on your child's name directly, mm. but at the moment your child does not have the financial capability to pay for the property. Okay. Mm. So as the parent, what you can do is say you can buy it for them uh, in cash, in, in cash, because yes, the child it has might, to be in full cash. The child could have start, just started working and Correct. therefore might not be able mm. to borrow that much. Mm. But okay. only if, say, the child is below 21 as well, like as a minor. Uh, okay, mm, that's okay. one, one of the transactions that we do see. Mm. So, But for those cases, you can't do a borrowing on behalf of your child. So that's against the rules. Mm, okay, mm. so your child has to be the borrower. In, in other words. Okay, mm. okay. So, well, let's talk about the ownership of the property itself. Well, I, I believe it's not 50-50 all the time, right? Ah, yes. Mm. Okay, so ownership of a property between two or more uh, members, there's actually two, part, uh, two different kinds. So, the first kind will be a joint tenant. So, joint tenants, right, they hold the property jointly. Uh, just now you mentioned 50-50. So, many people think that oh, joint tenants means 50-50. Actually, conceptually, that's a bit skewed so for joint tenants they actually hold the property as a single share together mm. Mm. so that two people sharing 100% together yes is, is that the yes. way of saying it yes okay, okay. you don't you don't say that 50-50 lah uh, um, there's also no there's also no 70-30 there's only uh, that, 100% and two of us share the 100% correct that's okay, for okay. joint tenants joint tenants mm. okay. so for joint tenants uh, that is the way and there's a right of survivorship so right of survivorship actually means when one owner passes on, the remaining owner, they will still hold on to the full 100% directly. Okay. So even if say one owner wills the property away to a third party, maybe they want to will it to another family member. That's actually not possible if you're a joint tenant. Okay. The remaining owner will always have the first right to the property. This also includes cases whereby let's say there are three joint owners, a uh, mm. joint tenant. Yes. Even if you have three joint tenants, uh, the... One person, One person passes, passes away. on, then the other remaining two will just come in and take the whole property. Okay. So because they don't actually dis have a distinct share of the property, you don't split it down ah, the line. Okay. Mm. So that's, it's not a distinct share. Yes. Okay, it's just 100% share by whoever is remaining. Yes, and this is called right of survivorship. Uh, the right of survivorship is the passing on yeah, to passing surviving on. owners. Okay. Mm, so the term for this is joint tenants. Lah. Mm. You hold this 100% together. Okay. Mm. So the other way is actually tenants in common. So tenants in common will be what you have suggested. There will be 50%, 50%, 30%, 70%. So this one is a bit more distinct. You actually come in and say, okay, I own 30%, you own 70%. We draw a line where we own it. Is this mm. decided in advance by the parties involved? Yes. So during our meeting with our clients, we will advise our clients on this and then they can tell us which one they want to go for. Okay, mm. So for tenants in common, there is no right of survivorship. So this means whenever one owner passes on, uh, whatever share they are holding, be it 30% or 70% or even that 50%, it will pass on according to their will mm. or the interstate law. Okay, mm. okay. According to the estate, it will be part of the estate. Yes, it will be okay. part of the estate. Got just it. that percentage itself. Okay, so two of mm. them. Anything else? Joint mm. tenancy and tenants Tenants in common. In common that's right? the only two ways okay, you can Okay, this is the, the, the ownership. <laughs> right? So mm, usually if you think about 50-50, that's actually part of the tenancy, tenants in common under the tenants in common arrangements. Mm. Okay, but 
you, you need to take a look at this uh, ownership structure. It could be joint tenancy. Yes, correct. Right? And therefore, it's not really a 50-50. It's not distinct. Mm, correct. Okay. Okay. So in terms of buying property, mm-hmm. um, getting legal help, anything that you want to remind us about before we wrap up this part of the conversation? Okay, reminding you about... Mm. Okay, I think one thing that as a lawyer, when you come into the meeting, sometimes some of the things are already done on the ground. So what you will want to look out for is when you view the property, make sure you really want it. <laughs> make sure you really want it. Make sure yes. you can afford it. Check, uh, mm. check, your, check with the bank. Make sure Correct. that you know affordability is a key factor. Mm, Anything yes. to look out for in contracts? And, and, you know, some mm. overarching guidelines uh, that everyone should know about. Okay, so for uh, for private condos, maybe uh, one thing that you wish to consider is whether there's any uh, inventory lease you want to attach to the option. So that's something you can do on your end first. Mm. Then if, say, there's any uh, rescheduling of completion date, you can also agree with the seller. But we do advise our clients more thoroughly when they come in for the meeting. Okay. Mm. All right. You're hearing from Hui Yu. She's here to share with us the legal process of buying properties. In the next episode, we'll be talking about selling properties. Thank you for listening all the way here. I hope you've learned something useful today. If you like more of this content, join our Telegram group, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter. For all this and more, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. My name is Andrew. Stay tuned for the next episode of Chill with the Financial Coconut. 